0: Alex Pearson with you here on 640, and I, I'm going to talk about a story that will just make you shake your head. It certainly made me shake mine. It is the story of 18-year-old Milo Yachmalian, who was killed May 17th, 2022, and he would die at the scene of this particular um, accident, and it would happen just as his parents arrived at the scene, because, of course, they were driving home from, you know, doing errands. And since then, as, you know, happens, a 67-year-old man was charged with careless driving, causing death. And since then, Milo's parents have attended every court appearance determined to do what any parent would want to do, which is get justice. And yet on February 1st, at that court appearance, which was in person, they learned that the charge was being tossed out because of a technicality because the officer forgot to sign one of the charges. One of the challenges here is that during the pandemic, officers would drop the paperwork off in a basket separately from the court and not in front of the justice. Normally, it would happen in an in-court appearance that the police officer would read it out, the justice would check it off, and then the paperwork would be formalized. And yet, because of COVID, and there was no in-person you know person appearances. There was no actual checking of i's and crossing of t's no one noticed not the justice not the cop and so this paperwork kept going back and forth and then finally we get back into courts and and the justice says oh there's no signature well it it wasn't noticed until six months had passed meaning you can't relay that charge it had passed a statute of limitation and for the parents of milo to watch this man just walk away without any accountability can you imagine how personal that is Let me ask Alan Yachmalian personally. He is Milo's father joining us now. Thank you so much, Alan.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Well, I know that this is not easy for you. I know that um, this is going to be an incredibly emotional time for you and and your family. Um, Take me through uh, the importance for you in getting justice for your son, Milo.
1: Well, oh, it kind of means uh, it, it's everything to us. Like, I, I, I can't attest to the fact of how broken our family is. I, I, I have to, my wife is destroyed by the fact that there's zero accountability. And as far as we know, this doesn't even go on the guy's driving abstract. There, there, it, there's, it's like it didn't exist. It, it's like Milo it basically was driving down the road and just died on his own there has to be like some form of accountability i gotta explain this to a 16 year old kid about why his brother's not there and that nobody's being held accountable for it this like you know words just don't come out of my mouth that explain how hurtful this is like it's just unbelievable
0: it's so deeply personal, and and while this particular charge, even on a conviction, would not amount to much, because that's just, we don't seem to take this kind of stuff as seriously in this country as we should, you know, I think any kind of justice for someone, you know, in your position, and your wife Diane's position, any kind of justice is, is so deeply personal to your grief um, that when it doesn't happen, I mean, you know, it's hard to move past this.
1: And, and you know what, I... I get that. They prep you for that. The entire, through this entire process, the police tell you, don't expect much. The Crown's Office tells you, don't expect much. It's like this buildup for, although this guy killed your kid, you can't expect very much for it. And already that that sets you back like, what do you mean I can't expect much for it? So going there with the expectation of not getting much uh, out of this, all of a sudden we go from not getting much to not getting anything. Not, not even a 93.75 basic ticket. Yeah. Like, I could literally get more fines and potential problems for throwing garbage on a street corner, which ultimately that's how it makes me feel. My son's life is not worth the signature. My son's life is garbage to everybody in the crown's office, it's absurd. How does a signature have more value than anybody's life? Not just my son. There, and, and here's the scary thing. I don't believe I'm the only person going through this. I don't believe my family's special or has any, uh, I think there's thousands of us. I, I think there are other families going through this just as hard as we are where a lack of signature or a minimum fine is set forth for something ridiculous. And it really puts a finger on the fact that life isn't worth anything to any, any of these people. Like, let, let's, let's think about this for a second. And I'm no lawyer or anything like that, but let's just think about this. For stunt driving in Ontario, if I'm not mistaken, you automatically lose your license. Your car gets impounded. And you automatically have to appear in court. You lose your license for a minimum of whatever, 7 to 30 days. You lose your car for a minimum of 24 hours to 30 days. Everything gets impounded. Yet, you can kill somebody and literally drive home from the accident. You don't lose your license. Nothing happens to you. How, how, how is that possible? Isn't the reason why all these... Laws are so strict about stunt driving or dangerous driving because they want to stop an accident like this from happening. Yet, Mm -hmm. here we are, Milo's gone, taken from us, and let's be 100% clear. My son was cleared of any and all wrongdoing. Zero. He had zero uh, cause to cause this accident. He didn't do anything wrong wasn't doing anything wrong at all in the eyes of the law. This is 100% somebody else's fault. Yet, here we are. This guy's probably purchased another car. He's still driving till this day. He's never lost his license. He didn't appear in court for one second. Yeah. Not one second. The entire mm. court case was four dates, four court dates, that lasted less than five minutes probably per date. So Mm -hmm. my son's life not only didn't equate to the value of a signature, but doesn't uh, uh, equate to any actual court time.
0: Alan, let me ask you this, because uh, the the scales of justice have tipped, uh, you know, so far out of balance at this point. But the man's name who was charged is Tomislav Urolki, did he show any remorse? Has he ever reached out? Have there been any conversations? Because he's not going to get charged again, but has there been any admission or or, or remorse?
1: Uh, he's never reached out to us or anything like that. I never saw him one day in court at all. So that's part of the whole system, that he doesn't even have to show up in court. He doesn't have to hear a victim impact statement. He doesn't have to do anything. He literally... While my wife and I were breaking down, losing our minds about this whole thing and how it's been dismissed or withdrawn from court, he was probably toasting champagne that he got off because the Crown's Office or the OPP or whoever is responsible for that signature didn't do their job.
0: Did the officer, has anyone reached out to you?
1: I've I've uh, tried to contact them myself to try and get some answers on this and uh that won't unfold until uh I think it's March 24th that yeah. uh I have an appointment booked with the, the OPP in the Crown's office to see if I can get any of this changed. I, I you know they don't they don't tell you a whole bunch of information and I can get that to a degree, you know, but I, it it just feels like we're, we're, we're spinning like the this is like reliving it all, all again to see my son's picture splashed up on the front of the Toronto sun today. Like it, it hurts.
0: No question. No question. No question. I want to talk about your son, Milo. I want to know who he was and how you want him to be remembered, but he also, he was a major basketball fan, but he also was a difference maker. And I know he had this charity hoops for hunger that he had started Tell me about him and what you want the listeners to to remember and understand about this young man.
1: Oh man, this was the tough part. Um, Milo was wise beyond his age. Uh, uh, Milo wasn't a basketball fan; he was a Division One basketball player, not not just a fan. He played in the top teams in Canada. Um, he definitely. Uh, he had the, he, the weekend he died. The Tuesday he died. That weekend he was actually traveling to the United States to be seen in front of American coaches. Uh, he was. He was probably going that September to the United States to play Division One or Division Two basketball. Uh, he played a very high level. He was. Uh, well, I was the type of kid. No matter what he did, he put a hundred percent in. They told him uh, in grade school that. He'd probably never get a chance to go to university because he wasn't enough, smart enough. And he, he would tell Diane and I that he's going, that there's no exception. And he would work his butt off to get his grades up and try and uh, ask us to put us into tutoring. You know, no kid ever volunteers to go to tu- tutoring, yet Milo was that kid. He He, he was really wise beyond his years. You know, over the course of years in playing basketball, we had we had met some uh, families or kids that were having their own struggles in life, whether it be financially or, or good, stable homes. And, and Milo was always paying attention to that. And on, on a, a couple occasions, he would ask me questions about what he could do to make things different. At one time, he even tried to convince me to adopt another child. Uh, that family was going through some severe struggles and he, he, uh, his child was kind of with us quite a bit going to basketball tournaments. And, and he kept saying, you know, dad, you can change this kid's life. You know, you, you can do this. And he was trying to pitch it to me like a salesman, you know? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. Milo, this is not an easy thing to do. Like just, you can't just randomly take someone's child and, and he said, "I know you'll do it. You're, you, you, you'll figure it out." And believe it or not, he convinced me. We we pursued it, and uh, you know, was, uh, Diane and I pursued the the opportunity of trying to adopt a child that I thought we could help. And and uh, it didn't pan out. But the minute that didn't pan out and that door closed, Milo was that kid. He he said, "There's other ways we could make change." And I, I'm like, "Okay, well, have at it." What, what are you thinking? And, and he started telling me about school programs, that kids are on food programs, and not all kids have the basic necessities when it comes to, you know, like a, something as simple as wintertime, kids not having proper winter jackets and boots and that kind of stuff. And he was telling me about this, that he had heard from his principal at his local grade school or other people he had talked to, and he thought, uh, I'm going to do something. And he had this great mentor. The guy's name is Clinton from Educated Baller, very high-level basketball coach, and just a great person overall. And him and Clinton came up with this idea to start this thing we called Hoops for Hunger Canada. And it, it really was nothing but these two guys, they Milo and Clinton, they would give up all their time and uh, – they would offer free Division One basketball training to anybody and anybody they could. And they didn't want money for it. And you know, guys like Clinton could charge almost 200 bucks an hour for this service. And Milo convinced them to, let's do it all for free. Let's do it for food donations. Let's do it for money so we could buy winter jackets and food and clothes. And I think over the course of four or five years, these two young guys, and, and Clinton, a driving force, and Milo, a driving force, they... They had probably raised thirty, forty thousand $40,000 worth of groceries and jackets, and then they would target schools that had kids on food programs, and they would show up at the school, and this is the crazy part, they would show up at the school and play basketball with the students and the teachers, and the entire time they had rehearsed and wrote messages to subliminally kind of try to teach these kids that they could have positive change for the future this was a 15 and 16 17 year old child because he did it for a few years they were trying to make change within their own group within their own community they would get basketball kids from teams that milo played against or guys who would train with milo and have them show up and these young guys had never done anything like that they they show up at this gym and they would get told why we're doing this. Okay, we're, we're raising money so we can help these kids that need winter jackets. and The impact was huge. I actually yesterday had a call from a principal at a school in Mississauga, reaching out to me, really not knowing what's going on at all in my life because it's kind of upside down right now. Reach out to me and say, are you guys still doing this? I have a family that needs help right now. Like, that's what kind of reach Milo had. Yeah,
0: and
1: and, and it, although we never officially registered a, a charity called Hoops for Hunger Canada, the impact of it was huge. This Christmas alone, without Milo, because Diane and I wanted to continue it on, so many people from our community were saying, you know, you got to keep doing this. This Christmas alone, we helped over a hundred and fourteen families. Don't quote me on that; it could have been like hundred and twenty-four, but. We helped another 100 families with probably three, four kids each. That's 400 people. Like, I had so much food in my house and in a local church, winter jackets and pants and boots. You wouldn't believe the outpouring that we got yeah. from friends and family that wanted to keep this going. It's shocking that that many people care. And if if that many people care about something like hoops for hunger and making a difference there's got to be people that care about the fact that nobody was charged for this
0: yeah look alan i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna run up to a hard break and it'll just get cut off but i i i I mean look your child's got a legacy no question and this right this wrong needs to be righted so i want to thank you for talking to us and um I, i will contact the premier whomever and see if this can be uh but can we talk again
1: yeah, I'd be happy to talk. And The more word I can get out, maybe I can help somebody else's family from going through this. Unfortunately, I okay. think the damage might be done at this point, but uh, hopefully we can help somebody else in the future.
0: I appreciate it. It won't be our last conversation. Alan, thank you uh, to you, uh, uh, Diane, and your son, Gavin, uh, for sharing your time. Thank you. Thank you. That is uh, Alan. Yikmalian, obviously, uh, you know, pretty heartbroken about... What he feels is a great injustice. And uh, it is. It it needs to be righted.
2: Alex Pearson. Weekdays at 9. We are 640 Toronto.
0: Welcome back to Alex Pearson. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto.
2: On February 24, 2022, Russian forces marched into Ukraine towards Kharkiv as part of their northeastern offensive. Three days later, they had pushed inside the city, but it was in vain. The Russian troops were quickly repelled by the Ukrainian defenders and pushed back to the outskirts of the city.
0: There you go. That is a, just a little bit of the sound from a new documentary called The Kharkiv Files. And uh, unless you are Ukrainian, a lot of us, most of us didn't see the one year anniversary of this war because most of us assumed that uh, Ukraine would be done within weeks. And yet here we are. And despite suffering massive, massive losses of infrastructure and human loss, uh, here we are celebrating or not celebrating, marking this anniversary And so this documentary called The Kharkiv Files will be premiering tonight at the National Club. And this is a story told by a young journalist who I was speaking with in those very early days of the war and who was in Kharkiv. This is the biggest, second biggest city in Ukraine. It's about 40 clicks from Russia and where he and other journalists were sheltering underground as the city became one of the first prime targets to be hit by this relentless bombing campaign uh, that they did manage to escape but the city is still Russian-occupied, but there are still Russian, uh, Ukrainian soldiers battling for control of this uh, you know, key strategic area. Finn Depontier is his name. He's a freelance journalist and documentary filmmaker. He is, on the title of The Kharkiv Files, the battleground for Ukraine's second largest city. Good to uh, talk to you, uh, Finn. Nice to have you back.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Alex. It's uh, been just over a year now since we were talking when I was in Ukraine and um, wow, it's 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 been the craziest year of my and many other people's lives, obviously.
0: Yeah. I mean, when we were talking, you were in like a basement or underground with a whole kind of bunch of journalists. And, it, you know, wasn't we weren't really sure what was going on. This was like in the first week and two weeks. And, and, and then all of a sudden we started to see the gas depots and bombing campaigns right across Kharkiv. And I guess you suddenly realized, oh, my God, I got to get out of here because it was relentless. It's like they didn't take Kiev. They just went straight to Kharkiv. Do you remember what those uh, those heady days were like?
2: Yeah, well, it's called the fog of war for a good reason, because there's a lot of panic and there's a lot of disinformation spreading around. Um, So, yeah, I was in this hotel with with dozens of other journalists. Um, But despite despite being with so many people who should know what's going on, nobody really knew what was going on, of course. And a rumor had spread that the city was surrounded. And so we didn't think that we could leave. Um, uh, So there were battles going on throughout most of the circumference of the city, but it wasn't actually surrounded. It was just, you know, reports were spread. and, um, and, and, And it's just really hard to know what's going on in an active war, especially in the first few weeks of the war. When the front line was was very dynamic. Um, you know, for the last seven or eight months we've known more or less what's going on in Ukraine. There's the front lines have stabilized, but certainly in the first month it was it was difficult to get um, accurate information. So anyway, uh yeah, we stayed in Kharkiv for about a week, I think. Um and then I fled to Dnipro in central Ukraine. Um and from there, I you know took a bus all the way to the Polish border, and I, like many other people, thought that you know Ukraine was going to be overrun in a matter of weeks. Um, nobody I think not even the Ukrainians themselves predicted they would do this well,
0: yeah, yeah, certainly, when you look back the perspective you have now that you're, you know, back and you've got some safety. Um, It it must be a completely different way of looking at this, especially since back then it was like, okay, this is it. These are the end days. And now we're looking back and realizing Ukraine may actually win this thing. Albeit, I don't think there can be any winners because the losses have been so great.
2: No, I don't think so either. And I think that Russia and Putin's perspective is if we can't have Ukraine, then nobody can. So if Ukraine does end up pushing Russian troops out of the entirety of its territory I don't think that's going to happen I think that it's quite possible we could see a Ukrainian counteroffensive in the south towards Militopol um, and maybe in the north around Crimea um, mm-hmm. but the more territory that Ukraine takes back the more uh, barbaric um, attacks against civilian and other uh, you know otherwise critical infrastructure uh, Russia Russia will undertake so um, I don't think anybody ends up winning in this war.
0: Yeah, because even if Putin loses, he'll just say, to hell with it. I'll take everything with me then. Um, But there is, you know, we've seen some polling, and the support for Ukraine still remains very strong. But when you look at, you know, the actions that Canadians want to take, and there is a fatigue as we, you know, get a a year out from this, even though we knew it was going to be long, there's a fatigue setting in. And we know we're seeing this in the United States, where there's this domestic pressure building that, like, okay, Mm -hmm. enough, we're done. And so there's a lot of mixed reaction on, you know, enough, this is not our war, you know, let's get out of it. Uh, Where do you come, given your your front, um, you know, frontline positions in seeing this?
2: Well, um, inside Ukraine, the mood is extremely belligerent. I'd say the vast majority of Ukrainian people are behind this war effort. Um, But the bodies are stacking up, right? And even though Ukraine is being, um, you know, successful in uh, you know, keeping keeping the Russians at bay, it doesn't mean that losses on both sides aren't equally colossal. And I do think there will be a time when negotiations uh, will have to be made. Um, Ukraine, in the end, will have to cede some of its territory. Um, and I think that's going to include a deal on Crimea and the Donbass. Um, there might be some... Uh, Alternative mechanism of statehood, or um, you know, some uh, some way to uh, some way to to make Crimea, or the Donbass, uh, you know, in- independent territories away from Russia. I'm not sure they'll they'll figure something out. But um, at, at the end of the day, if if we're going to want to end this war, uh, Ukraine will uh, will be forced to cede something. Um, and you know, the longer this goes on, um, the more that even the most uh, the most hardline Ukrainian supporters will come to that conclusion.
0: Yeah. Uh every, either which way it's uh it'll be a, a constant battle because uh, there will be Ukrainians uh, who don't want to give up that land even if they uh, have to. Um so you you you've taken what you did there, your experience in conversations and and um and your 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 view of what you saw and and come up with the Kharkiv files. Which uh, premieres uh, today? What what is it that you wanted this particular story um, to tell? Because this is Ukraine's second largest city. It is a major, um, symbolic, and it's an important part of the region. And it's still occupied by Russia.
2: No, so it's not still occupied by Russia. There's there's a very up? no. There's a tiny sliver of Kharkiv Oblast. So an oblast is like equivalent to a Canadian province in Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so so you know the Kharkiv province. Uh, there's a tiny bit of it still occupied, but the, the city was um, was liberated a long, long time ago. Um, but like all Ukrainian cities, it's vulnerable to you know these sporadic and and, and barbaric Russian missile strikes. Uh, with the Kharkiv files, um, yeah, we wanted to tell the story of this city. Um, that's where I was when the war started, and that's where um, a few of my colleagues have been filming for the last year. So. I've been basically sitting uh, peacefully at home in Toronto for most of the last year while people send me footage and I've been stitching it together. Um, the point of a documentary film as opposed to like you know a, a news report is to um, really get the most poignant and important moments distilled into one uh, you know uh, one product. so we have an incredibly large shooting ratio, which is the amount of footage taken. Compared to the amount of footage included in the film, it's like eighty to one. So we've we've really tried to um, just pick the most uh, poignant and heartbreaking and important moments about the battle for this one city.
0: Are you going back?
2: I am. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, undetermined right now, but we're gonna want to screen the film in Kharkiv, and um, I'm just gonna wait for uh, wait for some new assignments, but. Uh, for now, I'm just trying to um, promote and finish the film. Um, but uh, I've been wanting to get back to Ukraine for a long time. So, yeah, soon enough.
0: Yeah, interesting. All right, well, we'll certainly keep in touch, and um, congratulations. I appreciate the time, Finn.
2: Yeah, yeah, my pleasure, Alex. Anytime.
0: That's Finn de Pontier. The, uh, the documentary is called The Kharkiv Files, the battleground for Ukraine's second largest city, and if you've got interest to that uh, in uh, checking it out, it's going to be at the National Club, uh, premiering tonight at 5:30. So if you've got um, interest in that, but we'll uh, if Finn goes back, we will talk to him again because uh, he had some interesting stories to tell back in the day.